well, preaching the same text twice in a row is sort of becoming a bit of a habit of mine recently. Um, if you were here last week, nearly had a bit of a turn late in my sermon. But I want to assure you, I've seen her, she's not here this morning, but I've seen her a couple of times this week, and she's seemed full of beans and cheeky to wit. So, situation normal. Hallelujah. Not quite ready to see her go, I don't think. Well, to recap last week's text briefly, which is Acts 9, 1 to 31. When Stephen was stoned to death for proclaiming the, the Christian gospel to the religious leaders of his day, a widespread persecution broke out. Saul the Pharisee, who had looked after the executioner's robes at Stephen's demise, went door to door, rounding up the Christians that he could find, most of whom had very sensibly fled into the countryside, fled in fear of their lives. Realising this, Paul got a warrant to go to Damascus, the capital of Syria, that's wee way up the road, and bring back any Christians that he found there. And famously, on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who confronted him with his persecution and told him to go to Damascus and to wait. Struck blind, Paul was led to Damascus where he fasted for three days. Meanwhile, Jesus led a local Christian called Ananias to go see Paul to heal his blindness and to baptize him as a new believer. Wow, what a turnaround. Ananias also told Saul that he would be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people like most of us, and that he would know a lot of suffering in following the Lord. And a lot of Paul's life story is in, told in Acts 13, 28, 13 through to chapter 28, and it bears out that there was a lot of suffering. Well, Paul charges out into the Damascus synagogue and to everyone's amazement starts preaching the Christian gospel there. He was a very persuasive evangelist, apparently, but fled Damascus for his life. The local synagogue authorities not been all that happy. Returning to Jerusalem, the Christians were terrified of him there with good reason. You know, was he some sort of plant or double agent come to smoke them out? But we're told that Barnabas, the encourager, got alongside him and spoke for him. Again, he goes out and preaches publicly to the amazement of the church and I imagine the horror of his former friends. He had to flee Judea for his hometown of Tarsus in southern Turkey because some people were trying to kill him. No one likes a traitor then or now. Well, piecing together his life from the few mentions that he makes in various letters and in Acts, it seems like sometime after this, he went to Saudi Arabia. 
for about three years. Now, then as now, that was a very underpopulated, wilderness, bar desert sort of a place. We're not told why he went there. But I think it's, it's, it's a reasonable inference to think that this was a time of refinement and preparation. God moulding him into being the messenger to the Gentile community, which was his God-given call on life. Now, if you think about it, he started out as this law-focused Pharisee and he became the apostle of grace. That's quite a journey. Massive shift. A mentor of mine was big on the value of training and preparation. In encouraging me to go to Kerry College to study, he counselled me that I needed to invest in nurturing my giftedness. That, that there was only so far and so long that I could ride my gifts if I didn't take out a season to train and to prepare. 20 years later, I think he's probably right that that preparation time has been key to my longevity. Okay, so Paul then, from Saudi Arabia, went to live in a place called Antioch, which was sort of in northern Syria. It's kind of a crossroads city on a major trade route where several cultures come together, including a strong Jewish community. So think in our part of the world, perhaps Sydney or, or Singapore or Invercargill or Ashburton. You get the idea. That kind of place. And he lived and he ministered there for probably at least a dozen years. Or at least until the Jerusalem Council, which is recorded in Acts 15. That meeting approved the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles with no expectation that they would follow the Jewish law. Which was the point at which Christianity clearly diverged from Judaism. It became a spiritual movement in its own right, not just another faction of the Jewish religion. And Paul then went off on four long-term missionary journeys throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, the Greek world, which ended when he, finally when he was executed, probably in the late 60s. There are a couple of things that strike me about this passage that I want to mention in case they're helpful. And it may surprise you to know that there are three. An old Baptist once told me that the people of God eat with a three-tined fork. First thing is that Paul's conversion to the faith and his call to serve are kind of wrapped up in the one experience. What Jesus says to Ananias about Paul's role and the suffering that will come over the next 30 years was said at the very beginning. And often it's the same for us. We were brought into God's people for a purpose, to be a blessing to God's people and to his world, including our Sikh neighbours. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4 are all passages that talk about spiritual gifts. And that each of them make it clear that the, our spiritual gifts are for the building up of the Christian community. They're not just for ourselves. 
Now, you may not have had a prophetic word spoken over you at the outset of your faith journey like Paul did, but oddly enough, I did. It was at the Remura Baptist Church in Auckland whose great attraction for me was that I could walk there from home. I knew no one. I walked in one Sunday morning and said hi. I was baptised there after being a Christian for a few months. And this older guy that I knew just to say hello to brought me one of those word things that people bring at baptisms and he said, you will be a rod in the body of Christ. And I thought, well, yeah, I already am a rod in the body of Christ. At the time, it seemed like a kind of corny pun and a bit predictable. But with hindsight, I think he was probably right. When I look at the major things that I've ended up doing <coughs> excuse me, in my work, in my church, and in life generally, my role has often been to bring stability. I remember my first sermon here after Rob left. You probably don't remember it, but the title was Should I Stay or Should I Go? Because there was a bit of a queue out the door. It's not a very exciting gift. I won't write a book, I don't imagine, or go on the lecture tour telling everybody about it, but it's been my gig. Was something spoken over your life early on in your faith journey that needs to be picked up again and looked at? Think about that one. Stick it away for further reflection. Okay, so that's the first thing. Combined experience. Second, nothing in life in my experience is wasted. Not even the hard stuff. Especially not the hard stuff. And think about Paul. He's got this massive intellect. He's got the brain the size of an asteroid. He's incredibly intelligent. He's got this deep knowledge of God's law and the Old Testament. He's got an upbringing in a pagan cosmopolitan Tarsus, so he understands that world a bit as well. He's skillful at debating and communicating. All these things that were part of him were put into the service of Jesus and his gospel. And so was his pain. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. Consolation is an old-fashioned word for comfort. Consolation who consoles us all in our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we are ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. A mate of mine calls it brow mopping. Getting alongside people and listening and being a comfort. Now that passage is quite a thing to say 
when you've had to flee your home because your former friends and colleagues want to kill you. When you've been flogged, when you've been imprisoned, when you've been shipwrecked, when you've gone through everything that we read about that Paul experienced in the book of Acts. He, though, saw purpose in all that hard stuff. It was to be a benefit for other people. Now, I think we can respond empathetically to someone going through something that we have not had to, to try to understand and feel what they might be feeling. But if we've walked a similar path, well, we understand that experience so much more. Since Steph and I broke up, I have walked with several friends whose marriage is under real strain. One unlikely to survive, the other probably will. My experience has made me much more help to them than I would have been otherwise, because I can bring empathy and understanding to our chats. On a more prosaic level, doing accounting at school has been something that I have drawn on these last 40 years and just about everything I'd done since that gloriously wonderful day that I left school. Still remember it well. Almost cried in a good way. In law and management and pastoring and company directing and church-related construction projects, accounting was the most useful thing I did at school. Likewise, an interest in how people, uh, groups of people function together is the foundation of the church consulting that I've done for the last 10 years. My experience has been that God uses every darn thing in our lives for his purpose, every obscure interest, every experience. Have you seen that? That's another thing I'd suggest you reflect on how God has brought the threads of your experience and your interests to the fore. And the third and last thing, Al gets quite excited when I say the word last or final, that I notice in this story, is this Barnabas character popping up again. Now, for those of you who are really onto it, we met him first in Acts 4.36, where he is described as the son of encouragement. I'd have to say, as epitaphs go, that's not a bad one. I'd go for that. Now, I've got a confession to make. I failed nine papers in my first two years of varsity. Almost kicked out. I carry my academic record around, it's like parchment now, in my Bible to remind me of where I've come from. A mate of mine in the Student records office reckoned it was the biggest comeback he'd ever seen. The only reason I got through was because of a Christian mate who inspired me and dragged me through. He's my oldest friend. He's my Barnabas. I've tried to do likewise for other people that God has brought across my path. But I relearned the importance of being Barnabas Last week, on Sunday morning, I had brief conversations with two folk 
who did not think what they did here, what they contributed here, was all that good. They were both wrong, and I pointed this out to them. But it occurred to me I had not been a good encourager to either person, as my positive view of them and what they bring had not made the journey from my brain to my mouth nearly often enough. If you see someone serving in a good way, tell them. Be encouraging. Learn from my mistake. Don't do what, do what I say, not what I do. And yeah, that's hypocrisy. You're right. Okay, the Acts story continues. Meanwhile, the church through Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The church entered a time of reaping after the persecution ran out of gas. They lived in the fear of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? I hate being scared. I'm one of these people. I haven't even seen Jaws. It's only been around since 1976 because I like swimming now, I didn't want to be scared of going in. I haven't seen any of the nightmare on Elm Street and all that kind of carry-on. Couldn't think of anything worse. One of the most famous sermons in Christian history is Jonathan Edwards's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In it, he told his congregations that God hated them and everything they were and stood for, and that he held them dangling above hell like a spider hanging by its own thread above a fire. It's terrifying. Is this the fear of the Lord? Yeah, not exactly. It's more like that experience when you enter a cathedral and your eyes are drawn up and you just hush. Because there's a sense of being in the presence of God. I don't know about you guys, but I get it a little bit here because your eyes are drawn up. We have a big ceiling. You might experience this in nature. You know, you're looking at Mount Cook or you're, you're up on the hills gazing out to Pegasus Bay. You're suddenly aware that you're in the presence of your creator who is far, far, far above you. And it's an encounter with the transcendence of God, the Father, and I think usually the best response to that is just quiet worship. You go into a cathedral, you won't hear people yelling across the church. It just doesn't feel right. Now its counterpoint in this verse is the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which is an encounter with the imminence of God, the sense of God near us and in us and around us, which when you sense his love or his nearness. And that might happen in an especially meaningful worship time or a prayer time. God with us in the spirit of Christ. And I think the best response here is usually thanks. To say thank you. In this really good place, the early church, new peace and growth. The story continues. Now as Peter went here and there among all the believers, he came down also to the saints living in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years. 
for he was paralyzed. Paul said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. I think I prefer Tabitha. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they'd washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Now, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with a request. Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made for them while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and he helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Peter, as this leader of the early church, is kind of making the rounds. And clearly one of his gifts is the gift of healing. There's a number of Peter's healings recorded in the scriptures. And people respond really well to it, as you'd imagine they would. He's come a long way from the guy who tried to walk on water, fell in, and Jesus fished him out. Now the day I retire here, if you get that picture for me framed, I'd be very pleased. I just love it. Jesus reaching down to grab him. And then he lost the plot on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Come a heck of a long way. Now Tabitha, well she's got a different gift mix. She majors on good works and charity. She's someone who cares for people, who makes them clothing, especially when they are having a bad time. We have a few Tabithas here, all of whom are probably squirming right now because you're afraid I'm going to name you, but I won't. Finding your particular gifted place of service is really important. To paraphrase Ephesians 2.10, what good works has God prepared for you to do? And throughout our lives, it won't necessarily be the same thing. For a long time, most of my 20s and well into my 30s, my call was to help youth and young adult people find and be formed in their faith. I loved working with young people. It was so much fun. It was an absolute blast. Steph once described me over the pulpit at Quarry Baptist as being a youth pastor who was having a post-maturity adolescence. And she wasn't wrong. Youth work still matters to me, but it's not my call now. 
about a dozen years ago, my call began, became to serve the Baptist churches in East Christchurch. And a few years ago, it expanded to include serving the wider Baptist movement. It may well morph again before I'm finally put out to grass. I don't know. What's your God-given place of service? If you know what it is, can I urge you to double down on it? It's your sweet spot. If you're not sure, consider the sermon that McDuncan preached to us in January. It's up on Facebook on the Peeps um, page. And he suggested really memorably that something was likely to be your spiritual gift if, one, you enjoy the role, but also the preparation for it. You find that it releases your creativity. Second, you understand its significance. Third, if you want to know what that looks like, talk to, ask an intercessor about prayer, and you will hear what I mean. Four, you received unsought praise for what you do. And fifth, and this is most profound, I think, you feel God's smile on you when you perform that role. These are useful things, I think, to ponder on. Something we're going to talk about some more next Saturday. How do we help each other find our gift-given priestly place of service? I pray that there is something in this little talk of mine for you to munch on through the week. Amen. Could the musicians please come up?